Welcome to the Byron Dragway Podcast. My name is Randy Simpson. This episode is brought to you by Jim Casellas Mobile Truck Repair. Specializing in fleet maintenance, Jim Casellas Mobile Truck Repair comes to your location to service fleets of all sizes. Jim Casellas is a lifelong drag racer, and you know he stands behind his work because he puts his name on the business. Look, if your business and livelihood depends on your trucks being on the road, then trust Jim Casellas Mobile Truck Repair for your maintenance and repair needs. Located in nearby Kirkland, Illinois, Give them a call at 815-751-6042. That's 815-751-6042. In this episode, we sat down for a conversation with drag racing legend Arnie the Farmer Beswick. Excuse the background noise as this interview was recorded at the Byron Dragway booth during the 2020 Race and Performance Expo. Arnie's nearly 70-year-long drag racing career is truly legendary and oftentimes greatly understated. From his humble beginnings on the farm and his first taste of drag racing all the way back in 1951, Beswick's storied career was groundbreaking and trendsetting in many ways. A pioneer of early drag racing, Beswick was not just present for drag racing's earliest days, he was among its original winners. From racing in the original NASCAR and NHRA-sanctioned Winter Nationals that took place in Daytona back in 1960, to winning at the original NHRA U.S. Nationals at Great Bend, Kansas, Beswick was at the forefront of the sport in its infancy. We learn in this podcast about the moment he turned pro, how he became the face of Pontiac Performance, and how his trademark Tameless Tiger moniker and paint scheme came about. And now, let's hear from our featured guest himself, Arnie the Farmer Beswick. Arnie, welcome to the Byron Dragway Podcast. Glad to be here, Randy. Glad to be here. A great place. Well, we are doing the interview right now at the Race and Performance Expo, and Arnie out here hitting the hallways, hitting the show floor, and you really, Arnie, are a pioneer of the sport of drag racing. The year is 2020 right now. How many years have you been at it? My first race was at Half Day, Illinois in 19, uh, late 1950-51 era with a Oldsmobile. And Half Day was a, wasn't really a drag strip. It was kind of an abandoned uh, uh, airport. It might have even been owned by the military at one time. But the half-day uh, community, city uh, people, opened it up for drag racing there for a few years until they decided it was too dangerous without guardrails and they wasn't going to put guardrails or anything like that up because it was an airport. So you said 1951. Correct. 1951. And what kind of a car were you racing then, Arnie? 1950 Oldsmobile, Fast Fast Oldsmobile. So the thing that fascinates me about that era of drag racing is, you know, I'm spoiled. Uh, Myself, my generation, everybody walking around here, Arnie, has a blueprint to follow, has had a leader or a mentor or somebody bring them into the sport. But we're talking about 1951. Drag racing wasn't even really a thing back then. So tell me the, the inception of how did all this come to be those early years? Well, I think, uh, the track kind of got started by a guy by the name of Andy Granatelli, who was a STP 
uh, guru at that time. It was three or four big uh, companies in the Chicago area that put this whole idea together of this drag race uh, situation. I can't tell you the name of some of the other companies that was involved with him at the time, but uh, this was just kind of a fly-by-night situation because everybody was kind of getting antsy about racing on the street and they wanted to keep it off the street, so they rented this facility out there at Half Day and uh, they run it there for a couple, three years until uh, I guess the city decided it was too dangerous without guardrails and things like that. And I, something about the, they wanted, they was getting more activity uh, with the airplanes things and they didn't think they had time for the drag race anymore. Well, hot rodding is probably a term that was used more back then than it is today to describe people souping up cars on the street and, and use them in different ways. But really, uh, what is ground floor for Arnie the Farmer Beswick? When did you get the bug for souping up and, and getting into hot rodding before drag racing was even a thing? Tell me about your first car. Well, my first car was this 50 Oldsmobile. Oh, I actually had an old Chevy before that when I was 16 years old. My neighbor uh, friend uh, went to the military and I ended up getting his old car for a while until uh, uh, it was wore out when I got it. And then this uh, uh, idea of finding a way to buy a new car come into the picture. And so I, with my dad, went to the bank to see if there was going to be possible to get something financed because nobody had any money then. And I uh, ended up getting an okay from them with dad's signature and I think the first car which was this 50 Oldsmobile was 800 and some dollars brand new and uh, so uh, that's but what, what about up. it what about it just got your interest well I always was a because uh, we did we didn't have all brand new farm machinery in those years like a lot of them have today so there was a lot of fix and repair daily on farm machinery. So I, I was kind of handy with the wrenches in my hand and so forth and so on. And I always loved uh, to try to compete with people. I never had the option of doing any sports in school because my father was a cripple and I lived on a farm and we had cattle, we had hogs, we had chickens, we had corn to plant and corn to harvest and soybeans and so forth. So uh, I was never allowed to participate in any sports in school. But uh, once I got my hands on a car, uh, there was always other car nuts out there like myself who thought they had something a little bit faster than you. And we did a lot of street racing back in the 50s and 60s, early 60s. So at the heart of it, you like to tinker, but you're also very competitive. Tell me about your upbringing. It sounds like you had a lot of responsibility early on. You couldn't just, after school, get involved with an extracurricular, and uh, you didn't have a lot of free time. You had a lot of responsibility growing up. I certainly did. <clears throat> Again, because my father wasn't able to do a lot of the work that was required on the farm, it was kind of up to my mother and myself uh, to do, get it done because we had livestock and we had uh, 
uh, the corn, you know, the crops to plant and harvest. So uh, I was pretty much required to be there every uh, minute that I wasn't in school or doing uh, something. Uh, I did do some carpenter work when we wasn't busy on the farm. And uh, so I, my dad kept me pretty busy and I, I tried to keep busy trying to uh, find an extra dollar because there was very little money to be had in the farming thing, well, very, very little. You told us about the Oldsmobile, the first car you raced down a drag strip, but really you're known for the Pontiacs. So when did you take your first Pontiac down a drag strip? Well, first of all, let me tell you, my first NHRA event that NHRA ever had, national event, was held at Great Bend, Kansas. I drove out there at that particular time. I had a 54 Oldsmobile, and I won the first NHRA event at Grand Bend, Kansas. And I want to clarify for our listeners, that's not your first NHRA event. That is the, the first. first. That's when the U.S. Nationals was just the U.S. Nationals. There weren't uh, 23 other races on the circuit. There was one big one, and you were there, and you won. There was a, a World Series event before that time that you or you may not know about. The first World Series event was at Lawrenceville, Illinois, and that was in 1954. And that first World Series event was held at Lawrenceville three years before, again, similar to the deal at Half Day, that was at an airport. And because of the danger, I guess, involved, and because the city decided they needed that for airport use more than they need it once a year for the drag racing, they decided after the 56th season not to run a World Series event there anymore. Bob Bartell and his group happened to be there at this particular time in 1956, and of course, they was just starting to build Cordova about that time. And uh, he knocked on the doors of the AT ATAA, Automobile Timing Association of America, who was also there with their management people, naturally, and uh, talked them into having them come look at his facility or his team facility. Bob didn't own it himself. It was a four-man operation. So they come back and looked at Cordova in uh, late 1956 and decided, no, that wasn't, a, it didn't have a good enough asphalt, didn't have guardrails, didn't have a lot of stuff that they required. And he says, well, give us a chance. We'll see if we can't uh, make big improvements. You come back sometime in 57 and look at it again and they did and by that time they had it resurfaced and had some kind of a temporary guardrail system put up and that's when they decided that yes that facility would get the job done for the next world series event so i won the first world series event at lawrenceville as well as i, I run at the won it the next two years in a row so I won it at Lawrenceville three years and then when it started at Cordova I managed to win it several years in a row up there. 
Well, that's what makes you special, Arnie. You weren't just at these events early on. You were competing at the top of the sport, and you were you were the uh, you know you were at the king of the sport. Everybody kind of had their eyes set on if you want to be somebody in drag racing, you got to be competitive and compete against or try to beat Arnie the Farmer Beswick. So, you know, we so much has happened, and we could cover close to 70 years of history now to where we are today. What keeps you motivated? Because you've been doing the sport for so long, and you are still out here beating the streets at the trade show and drumming up interest and keeping your name out there. But what has motivated you over these 70 years to, you know, you could have uh, rested on your laurels. You won these first races in their inaugural years. But all this time, what has kept you pushing and motivated for the 70 years that you've done this? I love the people that's involved in this sport. They're, they're down-to-earth uh, people that I can rub shoulders with and feel an, an equal to. I don't feel that I am any better than anybody else. I don't feel anybody else is any better than me. And that's what I like about this sport. They're just down-to-earth, record, hard-working people. Yeah, there's a few of them in here with some deep pockets. But as a rule, the most of them are hard-working people, and whatever they put together, they put together with their dollars out of their own pocket. They didn't, wasn't able to go suck butt and get a big sponsorship. I never had that. Never tried to even get one. But uh, that's what I like about this sport, the people that's involved, whether they're a racer, whether they're a, a spectator, or what they are, or whether they're a business that helps support this sport or sells products that the sport people, the drivers, and uh, can use. They're just all the same level of type of individual, and I love them. Well, growing up on the farm, the responsibility you learned there, you've got a work ethic, Arnie. Now, when was, I guess at the, the peak of your busyness in your career, how many races would you run, do you estimate, in a given year when things were really hopping? Well, I, I can tell you something. I was just inducted into the North Carolina uh, Hall of Fame. The reason I was inducted into that particular and the reason I was uh, selected, let's put it that way, is because I raced out there a lot in the early uh, 60 era. Pontiac, I went to a Pontiac car in 1958, 59, 60 and on up. I've always run Pontiacs. Well, it seemed like the tracks down there was a little bit ahead of the times of the tracks in our own backyard, which I didn't like because of the miles I had to drive. But those tracks, seeing the drawability of the door car. That's about the time that all the car companies started getting into performance cars. I don't care if you're talking about Ford, Chevy, <coughs> Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Mopar, everybody was getting into this thing of performance because they could see they could see it was a big sales advantage to have a performance car. So, and I want to stop you for a second, Arnie. It's not hard to get on the Internet here in 2020, type in Arnie the Farmer Beswick, 
and you're featured in full-page ads promoting different teams and factory sponsorships. Now, for somebody that grew up, you know, going to a racetrack in 1951, growing up on the farm, in your wildest dreams, was that even something that you imagined? Oh, no, of course not. Not not in, like you say, my wildest dreams did I ever, ever think that I would ever be a subject that they could use to sell a product or sell an idea. Uh, but uh, fortunately for myself, it's paid off big time. And uh, I do get a lot of uh, people knocking on my door. You can't imagine the emails and the phone calls I get. If you had to put a year on it, when would you say that you actually turned pro by your account? Oh, I'd have to say 60 when I first uh, went to the Winter Nationals. NHRA and NASCAR joined hands hands in 1960 and had the first winter national event at Daytona Beach, Florida during the Speed Week event, which is going on right now or went just just got just over. Anyway, uh, I drove my 60 Pontiac to pull in a trailer all the way to Daytona Beach, entered it into their week-long race event, which was the winter national event, and ended up winning that event in 1960, the first NHRA NASCAR Winter National. And you can't imagine the crowd that was there. Of course, a lot of them were NASCAR racers. That The NASCAR races was run during the day, the qualifying, the time trials, all that kind of thing. And the drag races were run at night. So it, it was a big, big deal. And they did that for 10 years in a row, and I was there every year except one out of the ten. So you grow up from humble beginnings on the farm, uh, just in Midwestern Illinois, and I think about nowadays, uh, kids come across different things that they enjoy, hobbies, and then they tell their mom and dad, this is what I'm going to do for a living. And then people with more traditional upbringings probably don't really consider drag racing something that someone does full-time or makes a livelihood out of it. But what was the reaction to everyone when, because you're one of the earliest pros in this sport, you know, to make, make that your living, make that your livelihood. What did everyone that knew you away from the drag strip think about that? Well, while I was at this Winter National event, somebody, after I won it, uh, at the end of the week, he come up to me and he says, what would it take to get you up to my drag strip? And I looked at him what do you mean what would it take well I'm willing to pay you some money if you'll come and compete at my track and I just about fell over that somebody offered me money to come and compete and actually it happened to be a track in Greensboro North Carolina Piedmont Dragway and they was they could see the benefit of these door car that the factories were making at that time and he said, we'll probably have 50 to 60 super stock type cars. I'd like to see you. He says, most of them are Fords or Chevys and a couple, few Mopars. But he says, we don't have any Pontiacs or anything like that there right now. And I think you'd be a good draw. So I ended up driving to the Piedmont Dragway in Greensboro, North Carolina for my first dollar I ever had got offered to go to a drag strip and that kind of started things because 
that part of the country was really going crazy for those kind of cars at a lot of tracks in the, the four or five state area around North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, uh, West Virginia, South, uh, you know, Virginia, all of those tracks were crazy for those kind of cars at that time. I want to talk about the Pontiac for a second. That's what you're known for, but you had mentioned, and it's so simple nowadays to think Chevy, Ford, Mopar, and it had to have been easier back then to go with a more recognized nameplate, but going into your legacy and the thing that set you apart, what part of your success and your longevity and you standing out can be credited to running a different nameplate that a lot of people weren't given attention at that time? Well, I'll tell you what it was really what it was all about. Uh, Pontiac had some good people in engineering and the good people that was in the management of Pontiac that seen that performance was selling cars. And as much as Chevy disliked Pontiac, who was the top, supposed to be the top performance car of General Motors, uh, so they wasn't necessarily liking what Pontiac was doing and because Pontiac had probably the top performance car in GM in that era, 58, 59, 60, 61, Chevy did not have a competitive car. Now there might be some Chevy drivers out there that disagree with me, especially comes late 61 when they started tuning up the 409s and then the mystery motor and so forth come out. But the Pontiac was just so uh, dominant, not because I had it, but they just had a dominant car in that era. And then, of course, in 1963, you may know this and you may not, G because GM had over 57% of the automotive market, the government threatened to break up GM because they said they was a... Apparently they had some kind of law that you could not have over 50% of the market in any industry. I don't care if it was a car industry or you was making pistons or what you might. If you was, if you was selling over 50% of the of the market in, in whatever business you was in, that was against the law. So because they threatened to break up GM or uh, they'd have to drop one line or so they wasn't going to end up with 57% of the market. DM decided, hey, we're not going to uh, uh, sell performance cars anymore and that will probably drop our sales down. So that's what they ended up doing, not offering any kind of a performance car in any division, whether it's Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, or whatever. And uh, so come 1964 uh, and late 63 all the guys that was driving GM cars all went either to Chrysler or Ford because Ford was offering a very very good performance car especially in uh, that era and uh, so with my Pontiac car which was still very competitive to the Fords and to the uh, Mopars, uh, I got a lot, a lot of calls to come to different tracks around the country so they would have some kind of a, 
competitive GM car running against the Fords and the, the Mopars. Well, it's just fascinating to think the ripple effect, the chain reaction of government regulation and the law is the law. Just the ripple effect of what that has done over the course of the next 60 years, just the impact of the racers that went to a different brand and stayed with that brand forever, just what it would look like if none of that had ever been. So we've inched closer. We just left off in 1963 or so. 1964 is when Byron Dragway hits the scene. What's your earliest memory of Byron Dragway in their early years, Arnie? Well, that's probably when uh, a guy by the name of Ron Leak come into the picture. Uh, I knew Ron Leak from uh, other tracks that he worked and announced at and helped promote races at. And his wheels were turning, believe me. Uh, and, and anything that he could dream up to get people interested in coming to that particular track, uh, the type of race that they might be interested in and so forth and so on. Leak was just one of the best uh, promoters in that light that anybody you could ever uh, put a finger towards. He was great. And uh, I don't remember the first type of race that he invited me to come to, but it was, it was probably a, uh, at that time, the funny car was starting to come into the picture when Mopar built these altered wheelbase goofy things and uh, Mopar people won't like me for saying that, but I hated those cars, and I hated that name. I just thought it was so depressing to use the word funny against an, uh, an automotive car and throw that handle on them. And Leak was a little bit responsible, not totally, because uh, I was in uh, our, excuse me, Phoenix, Arizona, where they had the first uh, IHRA Nationals, where those cars first made their debut in 1965. And I'll never forget the announcer at that event, when he was calling the cars to the line, he come up with that title, Funny. And I thought, boy, if that don't... <laughs> curl somebody's hair or nothing will but that title that he throwed on him there it just exploded and within uh, just a few weeks every track you went at uh, so they was using the word funny to get those Dodge and Plymouth to the starting line so who used that term then the announcer at uh, the IHRA Nationals out at Phoenix, Arizona. Scottsdale, Arizona. I wish I could think of his name. And so that's about where the coin, the term was coined. Oh, yes, it was. Believe me. I was there. Anybody that was there at that particular IHRA Winter National event will tell you the same thing. Now, Ron's a promoter. If there's one thing a promoter likes, it's personality. And you, your cars were known as the Tameless Tiger. So where does the nickname, the Tameless Tiger, really come from? Well, I don't know if, how far you go back into the history of Pontiac, but in, when they come out with the GTO in 64, in 65, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Pontiac Engineering and Pontiac Advertising people, because the, the GTO took off like wildfire. 
wildfire. Well, then all of a sudden they thought they needed to add more color, so they come up with this tiger sales name. And then they knock on my door because I was pretty popular with the Pontiac by that time. Why don't you think about putting some tiger stripes on your car? And I thought about it for a while. I said, I really don't want that kind of image or publicity at this point. I got all I need. So the more I thought about it and talked about it with different people, everybody thought, hey, that would be a good handle to have on you. So I decided to tiger stripe one of my race cars. And that's what I did in 1966. And my first so-called funny car that I altered the wheelbase on to think I needed to keep up with those Mopar funny car things. I altered the wheelbase on one of my stock cars that I wished I never would have because it was one of six built and uh, just were, you can't imagine what it was worth uh, down the line because of a few uh, that they made of them before they shut the uh, GM shut the uh, performance line down. Well, stuff, and you may have thought of it as a gimmick at that time, putting the stripes on the car and coming up with those sort of things. But looking back, you know, we do an event at the track now called Glory Days. You come out for that every year. The cars that are out there, and you still see some people trying to bring it back, but there was personality. There was character. Everything was a little bit different. Every car had some unique quality to it. You know, if I go into a, a, a box store and look down the aisle where they sell die-cast cars, I'm not sure I'm going to find a competitive race car little die-cast, but I'm going to see a monster truck. And they've all got flashy colors and different names. And, and that had to have been something that really helped your career differentiate at that time. Oh, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. And that's a trend-setting thing that after you did it, uh, you can look down the line. Everybody that remembers a racer from... 30, 40, 50 years ago, they remember the nickname, they remember what was unique about that car, and that's something that you were on the ground floor of. You know, I'd have to agree with that. I'd have to agree. It, it was kind of as an accident. You know, it wasn't really my idea. I don't want to blow no horns or anything about it, but it, it did put me on the map as time went on. In a, in a, I can't begin to tell you how big a deal that uh, tiger name is today it's unbelievable arnie they're starting to shut the lights down here in the trade show i think they're going to be running us off but this is a loaded question to kind of get us to the end here and this is loaded because we're talking about 70 years of drag racing what's the most fun you ever had in a race car well naturally uh winning some of these big events that i managed to win in 1963 the I guess it was 1964 when they actually run it. Drag News was a big, big racing paper at that time. And they put an event together. Uh, uh, they called it the Drag News Invitational, which was held out in Ohio. And they, anybody that was anybody with a door car now, mostly all door cars, was there. The lady that uh, put together this Drag News paper made sure that they got, all got a personal invitation and maybe they even got some money offered. I don't remember. I didn't. I didn't ask for any. But I showed up at that event with uh, my two cars I had at that time. 
which was a 63 wagon, a grocery getter wagon, and a 63 uh, uh, tameless, no, it wasn't called a tameless, it was called a uh, passionate poncho. It was a 63 Catalina Swiss cheese car. Well, anyway, I kind of dominated that event with those two cars, and I ended up going home with the big winnings of that event. So that is, I could go on and on about several other events, but that that event, every big name you want to put that was in this as a pro stock, we didn't call it pro stock, and it was called super stock, but they were all were there. Whether it was Dido, Don Nicholson, Ronnie Sock, you name them, they were there. It was a great event. And I wish we could go on, Arnie, for the next two or three hours, and we probably could another time. Uh, what are you doing today? What's keeping you busy now? Well, I still have my Tameless Tiger. It's a 64 uh, GTO with the Tiger Stripes. And uh, because I lost my mechanic that traveled with me a lot, uh, I, I can't drive and be a tune-up and repair things. So I've last year I started letting another gentleman drive the car who is a local friend, runs a little shop, a repair shop there. Not down the road from me just a few miles so I've been letting him drive and uh, I could run non-stop every weekend if I had the time and the money to get all of these places but uh, I just try to do the major events where I think uh, they're most appreciative of us coming in and when they offer us a little expense money to get there and uh, that's what I do we, we make probably about 12-15 events per year and uh, get pretty good uh, coverage when we get there naturally. What is that like? Is it an out-of-body experience watching your car go down the track from behind? It's hard, but uh, most of the time, believe it or not, I'm by my souvenir table and I usually have my crowd there at the souvenir table. So not always do I ever get to see my own car go down the track because other people are, uh, you know, got me involved in autographing this or autographing that at that time. 70 years in any career or occupation is an amazing thing. Uh, be it in drag racing, probably makes it even more impressive, just the ups and downs and volatility of the sport. So I guess to, to wrap things up, what is the secret to, I mean, you're in great health, Arnie, you're in great shape. You're still out here. People still come up and take pictures with you constantly. They're getting autographs. They're going to your souvenir trailer. What's the secret to your success and longevity over all this time? I think most of it is uh, being, make yourself available to whoever comes up to you. Uh, I don't, I don't try to avoid anybody. I don't care if it's a kid or if it's a lady or if it's just some general gentleman off the street. If they got a question for me or want something autographed, I try to treat them like I want to be treated. I try to make time for everybody and um, try to put a smile on their face. That's the most important uh, thing that I want to do is put a smile on somebody's face so when he walks away, he will remember Arnie, the farmer. Well, from that airport runway in 1951 to the Race Expo in 2020, a lot of things have changed, but some things stay the same, and you're out here again just a man of the people, and that seems to have worked for you, Arnie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Arnie, thank you for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invite.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Byron Dragway podcast. And another special thank you to Jim Casellas Mobile Truck Repair for being the presenting sponsor of today's episode. If you want to join our growing list of sponsors and also be featured on future episodes of the Byron Dragway podcast, the Byron Dragway TV live streams, and so much more, then head over to byrondragway.com slash advertising to get started for as little as $42 a month. Thank you, and we will see you at the track.